I'm Kim. And I'm Tara. Welcome to Unapologetically You. Today's story is from Kathleen. And oh my goodness, imagine that you find out at 26 weeks pregnant that your child is likely going to die. And then not only does your child not die, but ends up thriving and saving the life of your daughter. Kathleen's is a story of love, hope, and faith. Stay tuned as you listen in to Kathleen's story. And be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Unapologetically You Podcast to see pictures of our guests and inspiring daily posts. Hi, Kathleen. Welcome to Unapologetically You. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. You know, being a parent is one of the hardest jobs there is. And yours maybe is just a little little bit more difficult because of all the things you've had to overcome with your own kids and things you're still continuing to deal with. So to start off, why don't you just kind of give us a little view of like, you know, what what is this week been like for you? Um, our daughter who has had open heart surgery, she's had issues for quite some time and um, they've just been getting worse. And so she came to me one night last week and she was like, mom, my chest feels heavy. And I, in the middle of the night, did not know what to do other than, you know, grab her by me and grabbed my home EKG machine and, you know, my pulse ox machine and my stethoscope and played Dr. Mom. And then our son, who's got health issues as well, we had his pre-op physical today. And then Saturday, we will be um, in Chicago at Lurie again for his cardiology appointments. And um, Monday is his procedure for all of his GI stuff. So in between their appointments, I work. And so I'm working full time again, which is a blessing. And I'm so grateful to be working again, juggling mom life and work and medical appointments is interesting. And then still trying to be positive. Your story of having such a profound faith through this all and that it continues to get you through some of the most difficult life moments is really inconceivable for so many people. But for everyone who hears this story, you'll see just how awe-inspiring Kathleen really is. We hope that that our listeners today are able to see exactly what it's like to be in the trenches with children who are having some serious health conditions that you continue to just do the best that you can. Why don't we just begin with what your life was like right before you were pregnant with baby number four? You know, we were just entering this like happy place. And so we were like, okay, we're in a good spot. And so my husband started looking for a new job. And it was one of those where we're just like, okay, we're really trying to plan for us right now, like figure out our life. And at that point, we really we didn't have a home church, we didn't have really any, I mean, where my where our faith is right now is so different than what it was before. And so once we were pregnant with him, it was kind of a Oh, my goodness, we're gonna have a fourth one. Okay, you know, but there was a time span. Like we didn't think we were going to have more kids. We thought we were done and God blessed us with a fourth. And after three girls, like now you're having another baby. Yeah. And it happens to be a boy though. It was crazy, but yeah, finding out it was a boy, it was like, wow, okay. Like it was truly meant to be like, this is exactly the way this was supposed to go. So you find out that you're pregnant and how far along were you before you started having to, before you found out about Joey's heart condition? So I was high risk the whole time with him. So I had seen a doctor every week from the second I found out I was pregnant with him. It wasn't until I was 26 weeks pregnant and I went into pre 
term labor with him that my doctor took me in for the biophysical and was checking everything with the baby. And the tech came up to me and she held my hand and she said, I have to go grab your doctor. I just feel like there's something with his heart and I'm a little concerned and I want him to come look at this. And so right there, I'm like, I'm in labor. <laughs> like, I know I shouldn't be having this baby yet. Like, and now there's something wrong with his heart. So I'm hyperventilating. Another nurse came in, held my hand, grabs the doctor, and he had such a phenomenal demeanor to him that he, in bedside manner, he walked up to me and he said, here's the deal. He's like, I see everything. I think it's it's really nothing. I don't think it's anything to be concerned about. Um, I think it's a benign situation, but I'd like to get you to labor and delivery and stop contractions because you're in full-blown labor. And I was like, okay, sounds good. You know, so he put me at ease and went into uh, labor and delivery for the night. Praise God, they stopped my labor. And they said that night, my husband and I were sitting there and they said, they're going to have a cardiologist, a fetal cardiologist, talk to us in the next couple of weeks. It's no rush. They don't think it's anything, um, but they'll get me in to see her and they'll check on the baby's heart and just make sure it's all fine. And I said, okay, sounds good. So it didn't seem like it was anything crazy. And uh, we got up the next morning and they said, you have an appointment in 45 minutes. You need to get to Central DuPage. There is a fetal cardiologist that came in from Lurie Children's and they're here for your child. And we're like, what? My husband had to work. And we still didn't think it was anything crazy. Yeah, I was still kind of like, I mean, I know they're seeing us fast, but I'm listening to them. You know, I'm like, it couldn't be. I mean, they've never noticed anything, right? Everything seemed like the perfect pregnancy. Nothing seemed off. And so I remember for some reason, I had to pick Lillian up from school. And so I went with Lillian. And that's kind of when it all unfolded. It was the longest and shortest part of our like, it was just the scariest moment where the doctor was like, you know what, I'm gonna do the scan and I'm gonna do a fetal echo. And it's gonna be it's gonna take about two hours to get the full images. It's hard to see the baby through, you know, your tummy and all that. And uh, it's gonna be it's gonna take a little while. So uh, let me do my images. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. And so I was like, okay, my daughter sat in the corner. And I laid there on the table. And I was still kind of like in this la la land, like it really was nothing, it couldn't be happening, you know, nothing's wrong, but it seemed interesting. And she started the scan. And within four minutes, she stopped and she sat on the bed next to me. And she's like, I've got some really bad news. And she's like, we're not sure that your son's gonna make it. And I just couldn't breathe. I was bawling my daughter sitting in the corner and like, this is not real, you know, and from that day forward, it was a constant, he's not going to survive. This is probably the worst we've ever seen. I can't even imagine. I mean, honestly, just listening to that right now, I had full body tingles. I, I still kind of feel that way. Like it's crazy to think back at that day, even little things about it, like remembering little things about it. Why, why did I have Lily with me? Why? And she was such a blessing to have with like that girl held my hand and just like comforted me through it. And this little kid and I couldn't, there was no holding it back. You know, like at that point it was, I'm a mess. You're, you're seeing your mom a complete mess. And that actually started a crazy downward spiral for me. So from there now, okay, so you, you're in shock. You are utterly heartbroken. Um, you're fearful for the next few weeks, the next few months, and, you know, forever, really, at this point. So you go home, and what do you, do you call Jared at that point? I remember calling him from the car in the parking lot, and I thought I was, you know, collected enough where I was like, okay. And he's like, what's wrong? And I couldn't breathe. He was like, what's wrong? And so I tried explaining to him, and he was like, no, I was 
was mad at him for not being there. I was, you know, emotionally just like they told us that he wasn't going to survive, that he was going to die, that, you know, they don't know, you know, they want if, if we had the ability to that we need to get to full term. But they also offered me a medical abortion that I should terminate immediately because the hardship of this is so nothing you can explain or prepare for. And I just remember thinking like it was crazy. And so Jared, I mean, I know he was immediately like, no, let's get get home. And I got home, which seemed like the longest drive of my life. And I was like, now we've got this new baby on this on the way. We've got a child that we don't know what is going to happen, if he's going to make it or what, you know, and my husband's new job. And so it was just kind of like, how do you balance all this? And so at that point, um, they put me on complete bed rest. There was nothing. I wasn't supposed to do anything, which is a complete joke when you have But a huge part of it was, again, finding our church family. And so that happened to be like, talk about God's plan, you know, like it was so perfect on that timing, you know, that we had a support team that we never had before. And so it was incredible. Things started working out in a way that it was like, you know, my biggest fear was obviously losing our son, but also like, how get, how do we get the kids through this? How are they going to survive that feeling? You know, I mean, my kids were so attached to just my belly and the baby moving, yet alone the fact yeah. that they knew they were going to have a baby brother. And we really didn't talk about it because all we were told forever from the first day of that uh, fetal echo on was that your son's going to die. He's not going to make it. We, you're, you should plan his funeral. It's, it inspires me, my son's story, because I mean, he's five. He's five. So did you tell the girls anything as a just in case? Or was it kind of like, we're just gonna wait and see? Um, You know, we did tell them a lot. They knew they started asking questions because I never did the nursery, you know, and so we did have to tell them little bits of stuff because they were asking questions. And I was such an emotional roller coaster. I mean, if I didn't feel him move for five seconds, I would start just crying hysterically and freaking out and calling my doctor. And I mean, I was in the doctor when that was diagnosed, I was in the doctor four times a week. And the weekends were the hardest because there was that Friday to Sunday or Friday to Monday where no one was checking on him. And it was so scary. I didn't sleep. I didn't, there was nothing. I didn't couldn't work. I didn't do anything with the kids. I didn't, I was, I was so detached from life other than his movement because it was going to be my fault in my head. Anything that happened, if I didn't catch it, it was going to be my fault. And so every night, I mean, I remember sitting there and being like, he's not moving, you know, because they prepared us for him to just not make it. And so we started talking to them a little bit more because as unfortunate as it is, they were all going to have to grow up pretty quick. If we got to that point of him being born and being born alive, we knew that mommy wasn't going to be home for a while. Like mommy's going to have to be with him. And this is what this is going to look like potentially. And so my oldest grew up really quick because of it. She became mom, but it was amazing. I mean, kids are so resilient. People do not give kids credit enough, but they are so resilient. And when they know and when they feel that weight of something like in a family dynamic, like they can internalize that. And while they can grow up, and I I understand that that side of it is sad, it's absolutely incredible to watch kids become these little adults, but still be able to 
to have that kid mentality and look at it through a kid's eyes, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and I think that's what helped too was like seeing it through their eyes, like little things about what they would, they, they saw movement in my belly. They were excited about a brother. They were never negative about it. It was never sad to them. It was never, they were just excited. And so that helped a lot. So now you're just kind of waiting it out. So did you schedule a delivery or were they just kind of like, we're just going to wait and see what happens or what was the plan then? Yeah. So the whole entire time it was, um, it was basically a, the goal would be to get you to 39 weeks because if you deliver any sooner than that, it's not mm-hmm. good as far as he goes. And he needs as much time as possible for his lungs to develop. His heart took up almost his whole entire chest cavity at that point. And so his lungs did not look promising to develop at all. And so the whole entire time it was, let's just get another weekend. Let's get another weekend. And then when I got to a point of where it would be potentially safe for a normal delivery to happen, they were like, we should start steroids. So I did steroid injections for his lungs to give him a fighting chance at all. I remember getting to 37 weeks and then being like, this is unbelievable. You know, he was in full heart failure. They're like, it's it's not looking good. And then finally, they scheduled a 39-week delivery C-section, which I had previous ones, so that was just expected. And um, I got to, I want to say it was 38 weeks, and I went into labor. And they prepared us for a OR full of doctors. They, they were said, there's not going to be an inch of room in that room. There's a team of 20 plus people sitting here waiting to deliver your son, and it was the freakiest thing. So what was his actual diagnosis? So he was diagnosed with Epstein's anomaly, which is his main defect of his heart. It wasn't until he was actually born that they could fully see the extent. They knew it was really bad, but they didn't know how much more was involved with it. Um, He went into cardiac arrest as soon as he was delivered. They never told me I could hold him. They never told me I'd see him, nothing. And I remember the nurse bringing him up to my head and she literally was like running to my head with him. I saw him and she was busting through the doors with 10 other doctors falling after her because he was in cardiac arrest. How long did Joey then end up staying in the hospital for? So he was intubated immediately and um, he was transferred straight over to the CICU and they were, you know, ready for him. He was there for a little over two weeks, which is unbelievable. Intubated on every single medication you can possibly imagine. This tiny little CICU was just filled to the max with IV lines and pick lines and arterial lines and machines breathing for him and different stuff going in. And it was like, that was hard. But I made my husband stay with him the whole entire time. I was like, so he was there for 14 days-ish, maybe a few more days after that. I'm sure. Not. We got to take him home with um, a lot of issues that we had to watch out for. He didn't have any procedures done at that point, which every day the doctors would come in and they're just like, I don't know how he's doing as well as he's doing. And it was three weeks later that he was back in the hospital with he had one of his first major procedures done to help one of the valves in his heart that because he was in complete heart failure at that point. But in those three weeks, he was in and out of the hospital probably six or seven times that we had him home. From that point on, we like lived in the hospital. It was guaranteed that two to three times a month we would be in the hospital with him. It's long. It's not even just like, oh, we're in the hospital overnight. Like all of a sudden it's a long stint. It's a week. It's two weeks. It's and you're it's never easy to get it, it's never easy to get out because they're like, if we discharge you, we don't want you back in a week, you know? And right. Even if they felt like he was good to come home, he would be back in. 
So even when they release you, are they releasing you with thinking, okay, he made it, he was born and he survived. And now we made it through this first cardiac arrest and he survived and now he's ready to go home. So then does his prognosis start looking better? No, never. We just don't know. I mean, they sent him home basically on palliative care. It's comfort palliative care and palliative I don't mean like they're just waiting for him to die because up until this point I think it would be considered that it's we're just going to keep doing the best we can to get him to the next place and so it's how far you know are we going to go and how much can they do you know what medication is going to help what's it's all about comfort at that point you know and still I feel like to this day it's you know it's any any moment could be that moment that there's Mm -hmm. something that's not right and so well, yeah, like living in that that limbo of always, you know, like the one thing that you always want for your children or your family members is that like security that at the very least, like you're healthy, right? Like, you know, you can't prevent somebody from getting into a car accident or prevent somebody from, you know, having somebody attacking you or having something horrible happen. But that health piece at the very least for most people, they get to say like, my kid's going to be okay today. And that's something that that you continue to live with and continue to just have to work through. And obviously you're doing an excellent job at it because look at you today. (laughs) So that first procedure that he had, what exactly was that then? So they went in and they opened up his pulmonary valve. They got him admitted and he was sick. Like we didn't realize how sick he had gotten. He was really sick. They kept reminding us like, you know, we've only, we really only seen maybe one of him a year. And I'm like, yeah, I know you guys also told me that he wasn't going to survive. So I get that, which is why I need you to call our surgeon. Tell him what's going on and make sure that anything that you guys do that he agrees with, you know? And so it was kind of left up to us to call our surgeon and get a hold of him and let him know what was happening. And I didn't want them to do his heart surgery because I knew the outcomes would not be the same. There was, it's the rarest heart defect out there. And when you add the other components of his heart to it, it just makes it even more. We were calling and trying to figure things out. And so they decided after pushing for it, they decided to go in through the cath lab and do a heart cath on him and try to open up that valve. And so I was like, okay. And they're like, but be prepared that if this doesn't work, he'll probably crash and we're going to have to do immediate surgery. And so we were just like, our hands are tied, you know? And our surgeon was like, hopefully they can just do it through the cath lab. That's all I need. Buy him a couple of weeks to get him out here and then we'll figure it out. And so if it were bad enough, they would have life flighted him. And so they went in and uh, he came out of that procedure and his numbers were amazing. And then it started going south again. So it was kind of one of those where you're just like, he ended up with a severe blood clot. He lost everything to his one leg, to his right leg. He had no blood flow whatsoever. Um, He was put on massive amounts of blood thinners at that point to break that up. Wouldn't, obviously couldn't get extubated. It was just crazy. And so once we got past that, it was like, okay, this is legit. We got to get out to our surgeon and see him for the first time, like in person. Finally, I think he was just shy of five months. It was, he got really, really sick, got discharged from our hospital out here. And we went straight out to Mayo and he had surgery. He was five months old. Yeah. So he had his first open heart surgery then. So the recovery on that, like obviously on open heart surgery, regardless for an adult is it's not the easiest recovery. What's the recovery like that for a five month old? Like you said before, they're so resilient. Like it's crazy. So obviously this was a little bit more of a big deal. Like I think he was in surgery. It was like 10 and a half hours of actual surgery time. You know, they stopped his heart during his surgery three times because they'd get out of one thing and then all of a sudden they'd see another issue and they'd have to go back in. And so this was considered his full repair. 
year. And every time he would go to do something, things wouldn't look good. And so they'd have to put him back on bypass again. And so it was, I want to say it was three or four times that he went on and off bypass. And so those were the scariest because every time they'd call you and be like, oh, okay, they're stopping his heart. I cannot even imagine. And there's nothing that prepares you for it either. Like, no, none of it. And it's also different. Like, I talked to so many parents and I became so close to a few women that got me through some of the toughest moments. And during that time being at Mayo, I remember them being the ones that got me through it. Like, obviously, my husband and and God. But it was like, I'm so grateful I had them because they had already been there with their kid. Every story was different, but it was just enough to be like, okay, you know, is this bad? Is this good? Is this, you know... Let me bounce something off of you. And so he was in the hospital. It sounds crazy. I think he was only in the ICU there for a week and a half. It is incredible. And he, once he was extubated and did so good, everything was looking so good. You know, some things that the surgeon was not happy with, but his heart was so bad that he's like, I did the best I could, but it's not what I wanted. And so he knew, and we knew from that surgery on that this, he called Joey a lifer. He's like, he's one of my lifers. And so from that point on, we knew that there's going to be a lot more procedures, a lot more things that we don't even know what's going to happen. And so we stayed at Mayo for a few days afterwards in a hotel room with him, had post-op checkups, and then we drove home. And I remember putting him in his little Halloween costume. You know, like, it was crazy. I just, it was like, we're actually dressing you up for Halloween. Like, when they sent you home, like, did they, like, the, I'm sure there was, like, a list of medications or whatnot that you guys had to kind of work through, right? Mm-hmm. But did they give you, like, any warning signs of, like, hey, like, if anything gets worse, this is what you should be looking out for? Or was it just one of those things, like, you as a mom would recognize, like, something's wrong. We got to go to the hospital. Out here, they gave us a list of things that we needed to look for. And our surgeon obviously did the same. And he was so wonderful about getting a hold of. So if there was anything, we could bounce it off of him. I could throw him an email. I could do anything. And so we did that a lot. And the hardest part was for Joseph, it was like we had a month of pure like, oh my goodness, you know, fear because you just had open heart surgery. But it was all his coloring. Like we look back at pictures and we were like, wow, you were blue. And he had pink lips again. And it was just like the most amazing thing. So looking back at that, it was like, you looked good. We knew you looked good. You were doing normal baby things. You were eating, you know, better. He was not sweating every two seconds. He wasn't huffing and puffing. He wasn't, you know, his belly was always really distended and big and it wasn't like that anymore. And so we're like, you look great. And I think we got, maybe it was about six weeks of like that pure bliss. And then it went downhill again for him. We started to live back in the hospitals and he started swelling everywhere. So he ended up having signs of pulmonary hypertension that showed up out of nowhere. And so there was potential issues of like brain damage from this and all these things. And so uh, they put him on another medication and then that stopped working. And then he went on oxygen and it was like, okay, you came home without oxygen. You got off out of your first surgery without. And so things just kept going down. And the kid was on oxygen for a year and a half and, you know, learned to crawl, learned to walk, learned to do all of his stuff with this big green tube running through the whole entire house and tanks in our car and on our back and you know in the stroller and backup supplies at friends houses and and so that was kind of we realized then that we were leading into uh, another surgery fairly quickly which they didn't want to have to do so with all this going on um, and you're back and forth in and out of the hospital doing surgeries and all this stuff uh, what's going on like at home how are the girls handling it was Jared with you the whole time was was it just you taking on all of this like what was going on behind the scenes 
I did a lot of like the hospital stays out here Mm -hmm. by myself because he was obviously working. So he needed to provide for our family. We were so blessed that at that point, I remember when Joseph was born, my sister was in the midst of separating from her children's father. And so her and her two kids moved in and she took care of our kids Anytime I had to be somewhere, she was here. And then for surgeries, she was here again. And we would go out to Mayo and she would stay with the kids. She would love my kids like I would have. And, you know, it was so grateful. It was like that perfect storm, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I couldn't have imagined doing it any differently. I didn't know how to leave my three most prized possessions alone and not be with them and then be gone to be with my son. It was was such a hard balance, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, so Jared was a huge support though. He'd come always when he could, he'd leave work and he'd drive out to Lurie's or he'd, you know, at when Joey has first surgery, we didn't know if Jared would be able to be there the whole time. He thought he was going to have to drive home and we got discharged way sooner than we thought we would. So we drove home together. It was like incredible. So he had that first open heart surgery at five months old. When was his next big surgery that was comparable to something like that? Two years later. So he was not quite three. So then there was another one. Yeah. And that was the big like we didn't know what we were leading into heart transplant at that point so we were on the if he didn't come out of that surgery well then he would have been put on the transplant list yeah and as a mom i mean what is that i cannot possibly imagine having to sit there and think about organ transplants period but a heart specifically is that something like i mean i'm i'm sure that you were constantly praying i'm sure that you were constantly yeah. talking about it with whoever you could talk about it cuz how else do you get it off your chest mm-hmm. how else do you but it was there anything that really a, apart from those two things was there anything that got you through it or were you just like mama mode this is what we're doing you know He's such a gift. There's something so special about him. All of my kids are just like, there's things that I've learned about them and found out about them that and see in them that I'm like, they emit such a beautiful, like unbelievable, just peace to them. And with Joseph, it's like, I just in my heart wholeheartedly knew that one, our surgeon, he was doing everything possible for our son. And we felt so confident with him working with our son's heart and holding our son's heart. Literally, like there was no one else that could do what he does. And it was such a peace knowing that we were there that we had, I mean, that you see Joey, he was always smiling and giggly and did things with just such grace that, I mean, if I had to walk around with an oxygen tube and learn how to walk and crawl and get around with this, I mean, it's a huge tube. And a huge tank and a huge concentrator and he did it and he rocked it. At what point did the next steps come like with the girls then? Because you at some point decided they should be tested too because is this I guess a genetic condition? It's not genetic. No, okay. it's not. And um, so one of his defects, which ends up being on the left side of his heart, which is why he gets a little fickle, is one of those where they're like, you know, it was always a put it on the back burner type thing. Like our cardiologist was the most amazing person ever out here. Like, but I remember her constantly telling me like, you know, at some point you should probably get your girls checked just to do it. You guys have every reason to have them checked. Our youngest daughter had already had her heart checked because she had, she had to have oral surgery done three days before his first open heart surgery. Everything looked great. After that, that we took the other girls, we made their appointments back to back. I took them to the cardiologist 
they started doing my oldest daughter's echo. And so she was doing lives and she's like, it's got to be so reassuring to see such a beautifully perfect heart. And I was like, you have no idea. And I'm bawling because Olivia's heart is just beautiful. I'm like, it's perfect. There's nothing going the wrong way. It looks the normal size. And Olivia's like, so I'm good. And I'm like, yeah, you're part, you're, it's amazing. And the tech just kept saying it and was, we were having great conversation. And then she got to her daughter, Lily, which was right after Olivia's and Lily sits down and she puts the probe on her chest. And within seconds, there was no more conversation. And I could immediately see something was not right. And I immediately requested a copy of her echo and had it overnighted to our surgeon at Mayo. It, it's completely different than anything that Joey has. There's none of the same, nothing. It's not even connected in any way, shape. Yeah, what's Lily's diagnosis? So Lillian has anomalous of the right coronary artery. So her right coronary artery is basically the size of a pinhole and it was pinched off like a hose. And so there was like nothing going through it. Wow. Which is so crazy because that's what feeds your, I mean, that's what gives your heart muscle blood. It's what makes it squeeze and pump and do the right things. And so there was little things that we started realizing. So our daughter played, it was in gymnastics and leading up to that echo, she was like, mom, I just don't feel very good. She would tell us little things and we're like, well, we're going to go see the cardiologist. Like anyways, you know, we'll check. I'm sure it's nothing. And we literally were, we're sure it's nothing. Like, come on. You don't get dealt that twice, you know, leading up to that. She was like, mom, I just never wanted to tell you guys. But when I was at gymnastics, apparently mid gymnastics, she'd leave and go to the bathroom and sit in the corner of the bathroom with chest pains and wait and breathe through them and then go back out and do gymnastics. And so she was scared to tell us and didn't want us to have to, she didn't want there to be anything wrong. And we found out that the risk factors for our daughter was sudden cardiac arrest. There would be no coming back from it. You know, you see kids get sick and fall and drop on fields and that that would have been Lily. And so she had surgery within eight weeks of finding that out. She had open heart surgery. Yeah, how old was she at the time? She was eight. So Lillian's was August 2nd. Joey's was that following January or something like that. I mean, it was just absurd. Open heart surgeries became like weirdly our norm. It was like, okay, we got three down. We can do this. Um, it was so different with yeah. an eight-year-old though. I, no one prepared us for how different that because was. Because the severity look. and the scariness of it being like this fragile little baby, like who can't defend himself or can't communicate, that's one thing. But then you're looking at it from the other side of this living, breathing little girl who has full-blown emotions. That has got to be also terrifying and almost worse in its own way, right? It is. It's so bizarre. Like her going into it, this kid was so feisty and so like determined. And so she basically had this mentality that Joey, I'm going to, I'm going to show you that I'm, I've got you and I'm going to, I'm going to kick butt at this and I'm going to be strong just like you were. She literally walked down the hall because they would not let me go with her into the OR room, walking like, yeah, I got this, you know, like it was on, I, I've never seen anything like it. And then it changed. (laughs) Then she had surgery and it was all of a sudden so scary and so fearful. And there was so much pain and there was so much reality to it. You know, Joey came to pick her up when she was discharged four days after her surgery. Four days. Four days. That was it. 
that girl, I mean, she should have stayed longer and they all admitted it, but she was ready. She was ready to go home. And Joey and my husband came to get her. And I have pictures of them standing in the elevator together. Him, yeah, him with his oxygen tubes. Yep. And Lillian with her cute little outfit, her little romper on with her fresh scar. But like you were saying earlier, how Joey is just this gift. And I mean, what an amazing gift this little boy gave to you and gave to his sister. Holy cow. What if, I mean, this is how like how cyclical like things are meant to be sometimes, right? Like if you hadn't had that fourth baby, if you hadn't had Joey, what could have happened to Lily? And Lily says it better than anybody else. I remember she knew that we were going into surgery to better her life and to give her a chance. Because if we didn't do surgery, the way they explained it was she would never be able to have physical activity. She would never, she'd be restricted for the rest of her life. And so we gave her the chance to live. And that was our theory on it was this is what we're doing. But her coming out of surgery and talking to the doctor and them explaining and really showing her her heart defect and what could have happened. And that's when they explained it all. And they, and she wanted to know, she was asking Millie questions. She goes, wow. She goes, my brother saved my life. And it was like, she'll tell everybody. So it's been such a, honestly, like a story of faith for all of us that, yeah, Joey's life and trials and things that were dealt to him and to us have obviously like opened up this whole new world of it did save Lily's life. Like we we're, very aware of that we could have lost her and very likely would have had we not known. Who plans that out? You know, I mean, that is not a like, wow, aha moment. Like, I don't know. what. Right. So now that Lily's had the open heart surgery, is she, will she ever have to go back and deal with anything else? Her repair looks phenomenal. And the goal is that it would be a one and done. But the reality that they make you very aware of is that it's just repaired. And so they don't know the long term of this. And so anybody, mm-hmm. and that's the hardest thing as a, as a heart parent is you have so many people that are like, oh, they're fixed, but they're never fixed. And they're never going to not see a cardiologist for the rest of their lives. They're always mm-hmm. going to have the risk of this not working. Or a lot of times when kids do have open heart surgery, it causes other issues. It causes an electrical issue in their heart or their arrhythmias. Um, The repair might not hold. Things could come up and it, you know, they don't know the long terms of it because a lot of these things that they're doing, they've only been doing for five or six years, you know? And so the longevity, they don't know past a certain amount of time for that. They know right now it looks amazing and they know almost three years from surgery, she, it looks good still. Her repair is holding, it's do, it's opening that blood flow. It's doing what it needs to, but she'll forever be watched. So in terms of Joey now, like what's Joey, he's, he's five now, right? What's, what's his future look like? You know, I keep going back to our surgeon telling us that he's a lifer. And so his is a waiting game. Every appointment could be the appointment that they say, okay, we got to do this. And so we know there's more surgeries. There's no way around it. And so the last ditch effort for him is the transplant. So many people have asked us a million times, like, why wouldn't they just transplant him by this point instead of like keep going in and trying to fix his own heart? And in, in fairness, a lot of people don't understand the whole transplant world and it's not from your body. And so your body can reject it. And there are so many things that go into a transplant. I mean, how many people have you heard of that have had two transplants in their lifetime of the same organ? A lot of the times those organs don't last for more than 10 to 15 years. Joey is five. In reality, it's not 
the first option for anybody or his surgeon or anyone. So we know that each time they've gone in, they have adjusted things and he kind of just gets, he's, he gets these little tune-ups and then he does okay. And so he's so symptomatic to the point where we know when something's going mm-hmm. on with him. And so quiet times, you're almost like, like, you know, something's coming. And so on top of his heart stuff, he has so many GI issues Um, He has a feeding tube. He is off of oxygen, which is incredible. There's a lot of things that just don't function in his body, right? You know, with Joseph, he literally is this puzzle that just keeps like unfolding. It's so crazy. We found different defects in his spine. He's got issues with his nerves in his legs. He's got GI things that we're currently getting ready to go in for procedures for on Monday. I mean, it's our normal, you know, <laughs> and um, the I look at the girls, the way they handle Joseph stuff, you know, like they're upset and they're emotional and they hate the idea of his their brother having to go through stuff, but they're, they just all adore him and he adores them so much that it helps it. It makes it a little bit easier to have that. Well, and I mean, they learn that from somewhere. They learn that from you and Jared and the way you live your lives and the love you show your family. I mean, as a mom, I I, I can't imagine the fear and the constant worry and not just with one, but with two of your kids. You are so incredible. And Jared's so incredible. You guys are phenomenal parents. And I mean, hats off to you guys because you guys are doing it right. Let's be honest. Like the craziest thing to me and that the fact that I can say it and mean it and live it is that every parent wants to take that pain and hardship away from your children, right? You never want to see them through it. I didn't like who I was before I had our son. I, my husband and I didn't like who we were as people before we had our son and before this crazy journey opened up. I didn't like the parent I was. I didn't like how I was living my life. And so now I'm like, I'm so grateful for these trials that it's changed all of us in such a way that like, I can't help but be positive about it and be okay with it. Yes, it's hard and it hurts. And I want to scream at times and I want to take it all away from them. But I honestly, like when I think about the situation, it's like, I don't because he's five our daughter is alive. I've got four beautiful children, an amazing husband. I'm so grateful for the life that was given to us. As hard as it is, it's I'm grateful. I I, I know it sounds crazy and some people are going to be like, you're nuts, but I am grateful. The fact that you are where you are now is th- this takes people an entire lifetime to get to that. Like it takes until their children are grown with children to be able to say, okay, well now I'm grateful. The fact that you can Mm -hmm. live in it now and watch your children grow and have this grateful heart with it now is only going to set you up for a better, more positive future where you're actually living in the moment with your children. For sure. I remember getting to a point, I mean, this is like so personal, but I mean, I've shared the last five years with you, but I was during this whole COVID situation, I couldn't work. My husband was working every day and I had like a back, you know, flash of probably who I was before I feel like I've grown as a person. And I got mad at him. I was so mad at my husband. He would come home from work and I was like, he quarantined from the kids. We didn't, nobody knew enough about this to know 
how serious we had to take anything, you know? And so my husband was living in my daughter's bedroom downstairs. My kids were all upstairs with me. He'd come home from work. He'd shower. He'd go downstairs. I mean, there was no interaction. And that's how we figured it was going to be. That's what we did that we thought was best. I remember calling a couple of my girlfriends and just crying in hysterics to them because I'm like, I was such a mess. I'm like, this seems so, I'm like, I just don't want him to work and he needs to talk to his boss and get a leave and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we had people offering for him to stay at their house so he didn't have to be in the house because they were worried for the kids too. And it was one of those where I was just like, I was so mad at myself for being so mad at him or mad at the situation. And it didn't seem like who I was. Like I didn't, I didn't know that person. And so I was kind of like, I felt so sick to my stomach and I just cried and cried and cried to my friends. And I went to sleep that night and I don't know what came over me. I mean, obviously there was something a lot bigger that you know came over me, but I woke up the next morning. My husband was already gone for work and I texted him. I said, can you call me as soon as you get a chance? And he was like, sure. And at that point he was probably just frustrated at me because he was working as butt off, you know? And I was like, babe, something just tells me that this whole not sleeping in the same bedroom is not what God wants. He does not want us to be separated and to distance ourselves during these times. He doesn't want us to not love each other and to be pulled further and further away and to almost act selfish. And so for me, it was like I had to have this like crazy, like slap in the face moment where it was like, no, we're going to live life. We're going to live like life like we've been doing. And no matter what trial is thrown at us, we have dealt with some that, you know, I hope people don't ever have to see. But if COVID comes into our house and we're living in the same bedroom and we're still being careful and washing hands and doing those things that everybody should be doing naturally, but COVID comes into our home and one of us gets it, we're going to get through it the exact same way that we've always gotten through it. And that's going to be with God by our side. And so that is something that was so awesome. And so from that Literally that day forward, it was like, it just felt so good to have him back in my bedroom and be able to like lay next to my husband and him to interact Mm -hmm. with the kids the way that he always does and to be okay hugging because we were like teaching our kids that we didn't want to hug them during that time. And it just felt like they needed it more than ever. That was a moment of truth for me to like really wake up and not slip back into that place I was a while ago. Your story is beyond incredible. The fact that you were able to get through everything that you did and still have this faith and still have such a grateful heart and be so positive. It's it's unlike many people's stories. Often you see people go towards this um, negative type of lifestyle because of this. And if, if anything, you went and you changed who you were and look at you who you are today. And it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. And we know that none of this could have been easy to share by any means, but we are so grateful that you chose to share it with us. And I'm sure that our listeners at home and, and different people that maybe be struggling in similar situations that you are will take from it that, that positive aspect of it, maybe even that faith aspect of it. And before we go, we've got some big questions that we want to go ahead and ask. Um, One of the questions we have is, is there any advice that you would give a family that has a child who is diagnosed with either of the conditions that your children are diagnosed with? Don't lose hope and don't fall into the negative places as much as you possibly can because you miss out on a lot of things that I wish I would have seen. Even just that one-on-one time with your kid became scary, but to not lose hope and to remember the number one thing I found out is that when your kids don't have a voice and when they are too young to tell doctors or other people 
what's going on, that you are their advocate, you are their best advocate, and you should always fight for your kid. Yeah. One of the other questions we had was, how do you continue to go through all these daily struggles um, with Joey and Lily and still have such a profound faith? How could I not is really where I come down to. Like, how could I not? With everything that has happened and all the different procedures and the, the different doctors, are there any regrets that you have? I think a big regret would be that I didn't always take my other kids into consideration as much as I say I did. And I feel like we always had that in place. Like I wish I would have held them more during that because as hard as it was on our son or on our daughter, we're now realizing and really dealing with the fact that it was so hard on these other kids. Certainly. What do you think that you've learned about yourself as a wife and as a mom and even as a woman throughout this journey? I am somebody, like I said, I wear my feelings on my sleeves. If you don't like me, I am not offended by it in any means. If you guys, if people don't, if they don't want to be part of this roller coaster, I get it. I'm not judging anybody. That's amazing to also be able to have that confidence. Um, What has been the hardest part about your journey? Leaving my children and honestly handing my children over to the surgeons. It never gets easier. It's so hard because you never know if you're going to see them again. What do you hope that the takeaway is um, from your story for our listeners? Um, It's possible. And honestly, like I love, trust me, I'm like so pro doctor and pro medicine. It's like unbelievable because without it, we would not be where we are. Um, but remember the day we found out about our son, they told us that he was going to die and he's five. Hold on to that. I mean, I know some people would probably think that he's not thriving, but he is thriving. I mean, he just finished two years of preschool. He, you know, runs around, he swims every day in our backyard. Our daughter, uh, did a 5k like a year after her first surgery. She, I mean, she, runs around and is active and she has a heart of gold it's there and as scary as it's been and as hard as it's been they're still here and i'm so grateful that we fought every step of the way for them that was absolutely incredible but we like to end um our podcast on a fun and light you know note so we have some fun little questions to ask you so our first question is justin bieber or justin timberlake Oh, Justin Timberlake. Yeah, agreed. Toilet paper over or under? Oh, totally over. Yes. (laughs) What's the most ridiculous fact you know? Ridiculous fact is that when you have a mammoth breed dog, they leave you mammoth surprises (laughs) outside. What's your stance on pineapple on pizza? You know, I'm totally pro pineapple on pizza. I think it's wonderful. All right. Your last question. You are arrested. What do your friends and family assume it was for? I almost got, I got police called on me when my daughter was really little in a Target. And it was because my daughter was crying hysterically holding a Starbucks cup in her hand. And I had another one out of the cart with her Starbucks in her hand. And I was pregnant. And this person called the cops on me and I swore I was going to be arrested. So this would probably be the reason because my daughter was crying so hard that they thought I was being like, I was beating her and I wasn't. I was teaching my older daughter a lesson about finances and how much a dollar costs. (laughs) And the woman (laughs) called the cops on me. So it would probably be for my kids having way too much and being bougie with Starbucks. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) 
I think that's my favorite answer so yeah, far. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us tonight and for sharing your story with all of our listeners. We've all found you to be incredibly inspirational and your story is just absolutely incredible. Thank you for being unapologetically you. Thanks for having me. We're so happy you joined us and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please subscribe, rate, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean so that we can continue to inspire you.